Well, thanks very much. Uh, I think I've spoken in this room about two and a quarter years ago. The first thing I have to say is it's very dark in here, isn't it? It's amazing, isn't it? It's like... Uh, but already I'm at home because it's got that nice sort of horror film atmosphere. <laughs> so, I'd like to start by talking about the European elections. Now, there's been a radical right in Britain and in England since the 1920s, since about 1922, in fact. Um, but no one has ever been elected to a parliament until around a month ago. And two candidates were elected, as everyone knows, because it went round the world on almost every bulletin that was going. One in the northwest of England and one in Yorkshire. Andrew Bronze, who I probably met about 20 years ago, and as a former chairman of the National Front, probably never thought that he would actually be going to the European Assembly later on in his life. Now, it's quite clear that there's a bedrock vote for this organisation, particularly in the north of England but not exclusively so. Simon Darby was almost elected in the West Midlands, and Eddie Butler, the Eastern Regional Organiser, who's just been made National Organiser, was only around 22, 23, maybe the outside 25,000 votes from being elected in the Eastern Region. So this is a remarkable transformation, which is coming at the end of New Labour's life. Just as Callaghan in the 1970s, if people remember him, was the fag end of the Wilson era, we have another fag end of a declining and decadent Labour Party, and this is the Brown period, the Brown zone at the end of the Blair era. It's quite clear, if you look right across the country, that with the odd rotten borough accepted, Labour is in terminal decline. They've got a lower councillor base than at any time since the 1950s, they have a lower number of Euro MPs than at any time since we entered what was then the common market. They do not control London. They do not control many big cities. And everywhere where people have a chance to vote against them, they take an opportunity to do so. Of course, this means they vote for other parties like Plaid in Wales, the SNP in Scotland, the Liberals in certain northern cities and so on. And in the south of England and in the Midlands, they vote Conservative just to get Labour members out in areas where their majorities are relatively thin. The media was aghast when the British National Party won two seats late at night when they were counted up a couple of days after the reckoning. I was listening to it at about two in the morning on Radio 5 Live and for a moment they were speechless because radio accentuates the sound of the voice because you don't get the nature of the image to interfere with it. Several of the commentators, it was late at night admittedly, and they'd been on for five to seven hours before this event, lost their voices and were flummoxed for a period because they never thought they would see radical right individuals returned to the European Parliament. In the studio, they had the uh, leader of the initiative called London Black Vote. And he said... It's a nightmare, he said. It's a living nightmare. He said, six months ago, I was celebrating the victory of Obama. We were all celebrating that victory, he said. And now we're sending, rude word beginning with F, individuals <laughs> to the European Parliament. Now, is it the uh, beginning of something very big in the society as Labour dies? I think the first thing the radical right has to do is to secure its own vote. 943,000 people voted for this political party, primarily for it to the north of the Midlands, but also elsewhere. There were worrying signs. The vote in London, in a sense, should have been bigger, but the enormous demographic changes in London are such that this is what we face in some of the big cities like London and Birmingham. Nevertheless... This is an extraordinary event because the uh, 
Wall of sand has had a crack through it and has come unstuck and has partly gone down. And politics in the society will never quite be the same again. What you have to do, in my opinion, is to instaurate or to build upon or to make iron hard the largely, but not exclusively, working class vote in the north of England in particular. You have to make your own vote, particularly at European elections, but also at others, impregnable. You have to mean that all the lies and all the rest of it have virtually no effect. The Manchester Evening News run an extraordinary campaign of propaganda in the northwest of England in the two or three weeks before the poll. Quite unbelievable stuff, which hasn't been seen for several decades, in fact. Interestingly, it was taken down a tier because the Guardian Group owns that Manchester rag. Two weeks before the poll, this Manchester newspaper said um, the truth about the British National Party, the Nazis National Party and Nazis. Fifty years ago, these people turned people into soap. Picture of a bar of soap. If you vote for this party in the northwest of England, you are endorsing this sort of thing. There was no restraint at all from the Manchester Evening News, which is, in a regional sense, the Guardian at another level. Interestingly, and partly as a result of a campaign against them and against some of their advertisers, pointing out that a considerable number of their would be consumers actually might well vote for this political party in the northwest of England, there was a certain resiling and a certain backtracking, which you get in the media these days, particularly when their money is affected because many of these journals are quite hard up. Guardian Group is teetering on the edge. The Independent is on the brink of collapse. We can see major changes in media ownership just as we're seeing major demographic change, major political change, major party change. There are many things to do. This party has to attract more middle class voters. You can't win without them. And it's noticeable that UKIP has broken off a part of those people who vote Conservative in their sleep without thinking about it. The interesting thing is in the southeast, the UKIP vote went down, and UKIP is there. And UKIP is, or contains people who are partly sympathetic, only partly, but in politics, the point is to bring people along. Politics is about energy and what you can do when a certain role begins. People who are quite moderate now and would never touch us with a barge pole in five years if the situation is different will be coming up to us in the streets saying, oh, you know, I agreed with you all along. And this is the situation that we have. Now, I remember I had a dinner once with Jean-Marie Le Pen, the former leader of the French Front National, about 20 years ago. And when I was on the fringe of the right wing of the Conservative Party at that time and attended a group the day after, half the people in the audience booed and half of them cheered. And I think UKIP's the same. There are people in UKIP who can be detached and broken away, who want something slightly harder, something more robust, because UKIP's MEPs are meaningless. The only time they get in the media after they're elected is one of them is, elect, is uh, found out to be corrupt or engaged in benefit fraud like Ashley Moat, and he's dragged off. That's the only time the media notices them. They're led by a power like Farage, but how much does he really talk about those sorts of issues? So the interesting thing is the breaking down of British politics as the Labour and Tory blocks and the Liberals sandwiched in between them fracture and break. 15% of people say they will never vote for the mainstream parties again. And there is immense hatred, that is not too strong a word, amongst primarily working class white people in the big cities for Labour and for the Labour political machine. As lots of Labour MPs face disgrace over the humiliating uh, shenanigans that they got involved with in relation to their own expenses, and as they stare at an election which is eight to ten months hence, and they face major defeats in their own areas, they're getting to a point where they don't even like confronting their own voters anymore. 
Even when the Tories won in Norwich the other day, they were appalled privately by the amount of anti-establishment and anti-political venom on the doorstep that was given to all of the mainstream parties, even the one that got the vote. And the Tories only won that seat because the Labour vote stayed at home, partly out of a residual sympathy in a mild and complicated way for a dissentient former Labour MP who some people thought was unfairly treated. Well, we passed judgment on that. But uh, there is a degree to which probably the electors of his constituency didn't intend his daughter to live in a flat at their expense. But that's just another matter. If you notice, the whole of the Westminster class, Tory, Liberal and Labour, and some of the minority parties in and around Westminster of a Celtic hue, have been involved in this corruption for a very long time. Tony Blair's mysterious transformation from an obscure lawyer to an absolute multiple millionaire by virtue of various properties that were acquired in and around Canterbury Square in Islington and elsewhere, all of the papers in relation to which were shredded retrospectively, is a very interesting transformation to behold. But all of these people will have their comeuppance. And uh, when Brown said he wanted the inquiry about the Iraq war to be held in camera or in private, it was to spare Blair, his old rival and enemy, within New Labour. Blair secretly fears that if there is a public tribunal about the Iraq war and the lies that got us into it half a decade ago, he will become, in his own words, an object of hatred. Well, the poor little chap, you know, he'll become an object of hatred. The truth is he's an object of hatred already for large parts of the population. And you have to say a lot of our people were very naive because in 97 the numbers of us that agreed with the Blair smile and the cheesiness and the talks of whiter than white and how he was going to do things for education and how he was tough on crime and tough on the causes of crime and it was going to be education, education, education. It would be a new politics. He said, do you remember all this stuff 13 years ago? We would be uncorrupt. That let the people judge us, he said. Well, the people are judging them. And Labour's now on 18% of the vote. The poorest sort of votes they've had since before they entered the national government in 1940. They could be down on 186 seats after the next election, heading towards the minority party status that the Tories had before. But what we have to avoid is what our people have done again and again in generation upon generation and decade upon decade since the Second World War. They despise one of the blocks. They become so seedy and dirty that in the end they chuck them out with an enormous wrath and they get in a wave of new people who make credulous promises and they believe every word, at least for a very short time, and then they turn on them retrospectively. This Tweedledum, Tweedledee nonsense has got to end. I remember in 97 walking up to the polling booth and you have this odd double take on elections, don't you? The media's full of it all the time and you go to the poll and there's hardly anyone there. And all the party people of all the parties come up to you. There's a voter, you know, one of them. And they're sort of excited to see you. And in 97, you could see the anger in people's faces. This was a Tory area. As people went there to get Major out, they hated Major as much as they affect to hate Brown now and actually do hate Brown now. And who did they bring in once they'd slung one lot out? They brought in Tony Blair with his lies and smooth talk. And he only got that job because Mandelson procured it for him and because he was a better front man, front person, New Labour would say, for the New Labour colossus, for their machine. Brown is not a selling proposition, even though he had a honeymoon period for 100 days. Every time I see Brown, he looks older. Have you noticed? He said, the one eye's up there, the other eye's down there. 
the hair was brown to black to grey to white to sort of completely white the hair is receding the, the chin gets lower the face gets lower he gets sadder and more bulldog like more lugubrious more sort of defeatist and sort of morbid scotch you know he, you really think the poor chap would just give up the job wouldn't you and have a bit of a life but no he will cling on to that premiership to the last second of the last minute of the last hour of the last day he will be there a sort of 11 o'clock on polling day, May the 5th or whenever it is, 2010, and he'll be looking at his watch because he's got four minutes more as Prime Minister because he has wanted that job since he was very young. He's a plotter and a sort of conspiratorial politician. When he worked allegedly for Granada TV, he didn't do any work. He used to spend all his time in the cafeteria plotting against other producers. And that's exactly how he's run New Labour, with smears and plots and bringing people down... When Damien McBride, who was his thug internally, who used to impose discipline on people, was revealed doing nasty and naughty emails about various Tories they were going to smear with lies, he had to go. But that's the sort of gang politics that from Fife, via the Scottish Labour Party, through the Labour Party nationally, Brown has brought to bear on our politics. But in the end, the petty corruptions and the power and the rivalry of these people fades in relation to what they have done to Greenwich and what they have done to South London and what they have done to the country itself. Because since 97, the process of decay that was unavoidably obvious under the Conservatives has been radicalised and extended. Immigration was 100,000 a year prior to New Labour, 300,000 a year under New Labour, consecutively, year on year, and exponentially increasing when you add in the illegals underneath. England is 16% non-white, and our people were never consulted about it. I remember hearing Michael Portillo on the Moral Maze say that every time he confronted the electorate when he was a Tory MP, even a would-be Tory MP, and don't forget this was a man who once had ambitions to lead the Tory party, he's now sadly reduced to being Diane Abbott's mate on various poufets and sofas in progressive TV shows and affects to loathe many of the opinions that got him into Westminster in the first place. But let's all put that on the side. He said on Radio 4 that he was embarrassed at times. And somebody said, why? And he replied, the nature of the country, and we know what he means by this, because they all speak in code, the nature of the country has changed out of all recognition and the British people were never consulted about it well. The British people were never consulted about it, and that's true. But he never mentioned that when he was in the um, House of Commons. He never mentioned that when he was an MP for different areas of the South. He never mentioned that when he was a minister in Major's government. And defence minister is an important uh, position in a Tory government. He was once asked, what's our defence policy as the United Kingdom? He said, we don't have one. It's decided for us by the United States. And, of course, that's actually a rather trenchant and honest remark, which few politicians would make, because in many respects we have ceased to be an independent country a long time ago. We don't control our own borders, we don't have any real say on our own trade, who, own, who, all, who owns our major utilities, our criminality is partly abstracted into the European Union, we fight mercenary-led wars on behalf of American and Israeli power elsewhere in the world, particularly in the Middle East. Until we decouple ourselves from this, we'll be dragged for the next 30 years as America itself declines into more and more of these post-colonial struggles over which we have little control. This week there's been another, an added humiliation in relation to our role in Iraq. Most of our troops have left Iraq 
but a few of them stay on to train elements of the Iraqi forces. But the Iraqi parliament, because they allegedly have the sovereignty, now the Americans have ceded it to them, won't allow us to stay. So in a humiliated, tail-between-the-legs sort of way, we've had to repatriate to Kuwait, out of Iraq, and to wait whilst the Iraqi parliament comes back from recess. And although it's a minor matter, and it only obtains to the reality and the destiny of 150 of our troops, it's significant that this is the way this heroic intervention, as Blair called it, has ended and dribbled out into the sand. Iraq war cost us 17 billion. We lost upwards of 200 men with 2,500 maimed. We've replaced the Ba'athists by a particular type of Shia Islamist fundamentalism in the South. We've achieved virtually none of our objectives, but we've away obeyed the dictates of the United States. Because again, we are not an independent country when it comes to these matters. And Cameron would do no different. No different to Brown and no different to Blair. Indeed, he was more in favour of this war than most Labour MPs were in their hearts, although they went through the lobbies against their better judgment. The odd one like Claire Short falls away at the 11th hour. But women like Short have connived at processes of destruction that were prior to those developments and that were ongoing. We don't have control of our affairs because we've successively lost them. We've successively lost them because we've been non-nationalistic in relation to almost all post-war developments. From about 1948 and the passage of the Nationality Act that began the process which has ended in Brixton and Lambeth and Handsworth and Tuxteth and St Paul's, Bristol and elsewhere now, the process began with the Labour Nationality Act of 1948. Every decision which has basically been made has been progressively neoliberal and downhill in every respect, on law and order, on immigration, on crime, on economic management, on the demography of the country, on the economic welfare of the country, on its diplomatic relationships with other societies. There's going to be major cuts next year. Public spending may go down 10%. We are incredibly in debt, and 16% of 16-year-olds are unemployed. For every trash job in McDonald's, there's 200 applications now because a significant proportion of people in the younger generation are desperate in relation to what's going on. The grace and favour of the 60s and 70s, which only afflicted certain people anyway, is gone. Things are going to get much, much harsher in this country as we decline towards second and then towards third world status unless there is a definite political desire to revive the fortunes of the society. We're in 2009. Most people in this room are, in some respects, of in middling life. Imagine what this country is going to be like on present trends if there is nothing to reverse many of the processes which are ongoing by 2060. Imagine what it's going to be like 100 years from now. 100 years back, we ruled a quarter of the world and were a major superpower. Now we haven't got a pot and rely on the United States for everything. Half of every pound we create goes to fuel the debt that exists under the economy. Everyone in this room is £55,000 in debt. And you may not have any debts at all. But technically, everybody, if you align all the private debt, all the cards, all the store cards, all the credit cards, and all the money to rescue the private sector banks, NatWest is 70% state-owned, you own it, but you have no say over its executives. Why did they adopt these state socialist measures in the last year or two? It was to save the economic system as it presently exists. Because if those banks had gone down, you could have 10% unemployed, 20% unemployed, 30% unemployed. The town where I am, about 25% of all retail outlets will fail in the next year to year and a half. 
And not only will we have one recession, we will have one recession which in my opinion will last till the end of this year, then there will be a minor blip about which the media will go berserk, and then we'll be hit by another recession. It's the W effect, the two dips, as economists call it. And we will keep going down, one recession following another. The model for many Western countries that are strapped on debt and leveraged out to their eyeballs and have lived like drug addicts on easy and trash money is Japan. Japan's been in recession for about 17 years, where they just bumble along and grind along. They can have a life, but there is no growth particularly. And the interesting thing is that we have an enormous population now, which is set to rise from 60 million, its present load, to 70 million by the middle of this century. Blunkett, remember Blunkett, before all those affairs and all that nonsense, when Blunkett was Home Secretary... In the, uh, in the early stages of New Labour, he said there is no natural end to immigration, he said. No natural end. Well, no natural end means radical minority status for us in this society in 50 to 60 years. And the turnaround window is 20 years. The turnaround window is 20 years. And in many areas of the country, we're in a minority now. And it's not much fun being a minority, particularly when you've been allegedly top dog and been majoritarian in the past. Because then you have to use political correctness and all of these games to protect yourself. Because they're really insurance policies that you use as armour in relation to other infractions and other in groups and people that put things on you. You want a bit for your culture, a bit for your music, a bit for your architecture, a bit for your ancestry, a bit for your flag. And you get a bit, you get a slice, you get a token. And you have to be pleased with that. Because that's all you're going to get in a group-based society, as this has now become. Because the old class fishers of the past have largely been replaced by ethnic, racial, communitarian and group-based tensions. The like of which will always be exacerbated when the economy goes down rather than up, and when tension between groups rises as a result of the fact they're all different, they're all chafing against each other, and they're all looking at a receding socio-economic pot. Our elite has gone global and doesn't really think in terms of this society's benefit anymore. Most Labour and Tory politicians, with the Liberals feeding ideas into them from the centre of the, of the spectrum, think of themselves as citizens of the world. A man like Blair or Brown has more in common with Obama, more in common with a leading banker in China, than they actually have with people here in Greenwich. They think of England and Britain as a puddle that they step beyond to a world-like type pseudo-government invested in the UN and these other international meetings at the G9, G20, G40 and so on, and all of these other congresses that they spend most of their time attending. They think that world management is what they're about. That's partly what these foreign wars are about. And don't forget that we are living now in a system that has taken 40 years to build. Capital and money goes all around the world. A man, in a, screen, or a man with a screen in the city of London or a big exchange in Leeds could put his thumb on the screen and send $10 million or pounds or euros or any country, currency, yuan, Chinese currency, across the world. But if money moves across the world, labour moves across the world to fit in with the path of money. And labour is immigration. And immigration moves across continents and across boundaries and across borders, following the money, seeking it out, doing jobs at lower than the middle minimum wage, brought in by intermediate third parties and pre-structured so to do. Mass immigration is a pool of semi-unemployed, 
skilled to unskilled labour that undercuts the value of labour and keeps it at a median or lower than median level. It's so you get this enormous boom and bust economy fueled by credit where if you want a pizza at three in the morning it will be dispatched to you by an Albanian on a small motorbike. And it's this economy that you then pay for by a credit card. And you manifest that transaction again and again and again, and you had a hundred and a thousand and ten thousand and ten million transactions of that sort on top. And you have an economy where no one really makes anything except things which are instantly consumed. Because we have no steel industry anymore, no coal industry anymore, no car industry anymore. We virtually don't make anything anymore. We process the nuclear waste of other people. Somebody once drove me through the industrial area of Liverpool, and there's nothing left. The only factory that was left that was British was making bouncy castles. That's all we produce. This was a great imperial city based upon the wealth of slavery, a city of power. Look at the neoclassical and classical architectures. You go around the centre of Liverpool. Denigrated now, but a, an enormous Victorian city like Manchester of empire and power. These cities are on the last legs now. Blitzed and destroyed. Full of immigrants in the centre. There's an enormous Somali population in the centre of Liverpool, in Tuxteth. Why are they there? They're there because of the Genocide Act that was passed by the United Nations in 1948. We signed up to that then. Somalia hasn't had a state for 35 years. It's just militias and armed semi-Islamist gangs roaming around. Almost anyone can claim asylum because it's such a horrifying life. Don't forget tens of thousands of people have claimed asylum in Iraq. At least a million Iraqis have been killed and two to four million have been displaced. And there's tens of thousands who want to get into this country because they say they're a Wazili or they're Christian or they're a particular type of minority, they face persecution. We should give them the right of settlement because we invaded their country on behalf of the Americans and blew large parts of it to bits. And many groups have a claim on Western societies and can turn up and their claim has to be seriously considered in inverted commas because we've signed up again and again and again to more and more laws which prevent us from doing anything. Prevent us from doing anything to manage our own country in our own interest in an effective manner. Cameron's gang will probably take over within a year and he will do nothing about any of these things. Nothing about any of them. Cameron is a member of United Against Fascism, or UAF. Extraordinary to have a Tory member of the UAF. It's quite unbelievable. In the past, you have to say that Tory leaders, would have, that would have been a step too far. Associated with neo-communist and Trotskyist groups who plausibly, deniably advocate violence and so on. That would have been, for sort of a posh so-and-so like Cameron, a step too far uh, in the past. But not now. It's just a politically correct gesture that he's making in towards middling voters. But all of these middling voters have a secret fear. And the thing that this party must do, particularly with people who have a stake in this society, particularly with middling and bourgeois persons, is to tell them, do you want to be in a minority 50 years from now? Because secretly and semi-secretly, none of them do. None of them do. Because although everyone's traumatised about these issues and this party is very demonised in the mass media, except to a degree on the internet, everyone when they meet, and most of our people are totally apolitical, but when they meet, they talk about these issues. They don't talk about what the elite talks about, they talk about these issues. They talk about crime in South London. They talk about the fact that in many of our towns, we're only 50% of the population. 50% of the population. And it will get worse, unless people make a definite political choice to make it better. 
The Islamist threat and the bombings which were celebrated three years back in the sense of remembered and celebrated with these steel poles, if you notice, in this park near Tavistock Square. I know somebody who was in Tavistock Square when the bus bomb went off three years ago. When an explosion happens above ground, there's this very artificial crack, this sort of crack that isn't a natural sound, and everyone freezes and wonders what it is, and that whole bus had been blown out and the roof had come in and then blown off and all the glass had gone out and all the rest of it. And there seemed to be nobody in it because all the charred bodies were on the ground or on the floor of the bus and so on. Now, these Islamist movements, many of whose activities have been broken up by the security services, it appears, relatively successfully, because the will was certainly there, and uh, quite a few of these plots have been broken up. Nevertheless, they see this society as prey. They see it as easy pickings because they look on us and have a double take. Islamists like them, in the third world, think of the cruelty of the West as they see American helicopter gunships go over, manned by Israelis, over Palestinian villages. And yet when many of them come here, they're amazed at how weak and soft the West is, how we appear to be on our backs, how we appear to have lost part of our culture and our structures and our traditions, how we don't really appear to care for anything but beer and football. We're too frightened to stand up for ourselves. We're too frightened to be nationalistic and powerful in the majority. We're traumatised by politically correct words which are deliberately put in place so people can't express what they really uh, think about the changes in the society. And that's why it's being deliberately done. All of our politicians, the odd eccentric like Enoch Powell and Anand Clark and a few others, have refused to speak out about the enormous changes that have occurred. Even in the media, it used to be said 20 to 30 years ago, that the thing you can't get a politician to talk about is the European Union, as it then was called, uh, the, then was called the common market, and immigration. In other words, two primal issues, not the trivia and the incidental stuff, Northern Ireland may be accepted, about which they used to witter on, but primal issues of power and identity that these people will never talk about in a month of Sundays, that they will never, ever deliberate upon. These people are supposed to be elected to be a ruling class, to be a political class, to dominate the society, to give a direction to people. The truth is we've been directionless for 70 to 80 years since the First World War. We drifted into one thing, drifted into another, drifted into the loss of empire, drifted into economic decline, drifted into becoming a satrapy of the United States, drifted into mass immigration. The Tories have done nothing to stop it. Churchill and all the others in the 50s could have reversed the social agenda of Labour post 45, 46, and they never did. All the Tories do is manage the decay a bit better, or at least think they do so. Look at comprehensive education. Introduced by leftists as an idealist system to get over the 11 plus and divisions, and all these poor people who failed it and all the rest of it, and what a monstrous uh, nightmare the secondary moderns were. The secondary modern schools, which were schools of Tory neglect, because the Tories have never cared about working class people and never will, and their patriotism only extends to a proportion of the society. That's why the genuine right has a patriotic concern for the whole society. As Labour dies and collapses over 100 years after it was created, the Labour Representation Committee was set up by the unions in 1900. New forces are emerging. The reason why this party is loathed and hated by Labour, almost to a sort of rabid extent, is because it's the rival for working class votes, given that the left has betrayed the people it said that it represented for generation after generation. The Tories never cared 
what happened to the people at the bottom. And also at times they just left alone because benign neglect was their essential viewpoint. Labour's intervened and made a mess of it on almost all fronts, doing it with a smile on their face and socialist dreams in their mind. But their views are incorrect on all areas. A couple of weeks ago, the Prime Minister's wife, Sarah Brown, attended the Gay Pride Rally in the middle of London, and she marched along with a pink Union Jack. With a pink Union Jack. I mean, there is a sort of Monty Python element to it, isn't there? There, there is a degree to which you couldn't make it up, really. But this is what's going on. And that's just one, and not a particularly important issue anyway, but it's one of many, many issues whereby prior structures have been smashed to pieces and have done so deliberately in order to wake up, wake the new fauna and flora. Look at many of our cities now. My mother was born in Manchester. This is very interesting what's happened to these great northern cities, and it's why there's a considerable vote for this political party. Centre of Manchester is blitzed. It was an industrial area, miles of plating. We built the Lancaster bomber there, and that sort of thing. There's nothing there now. Nothing there but blocks, immigrants, the middle class moved out to Cheshire about 25 years ago. A trash labour authority dominates it. Progressive and trendy whites go back into the centre to fill the gap. In Manchester, you can have a man in a penthouse that's worth a million and a half pounds on the top of a block, and he looks down on a drug addict, on a stained mattress, shooting up heroin mainline, and he thinks it's all part of the funky deal. It's all part of the trendiness and the multicult that these people like to live amongst. In these areas, Rusholm, uh, Wally Range, Gorton, um, areas where ethnics are 70%, whites are 30%, the Curry Mile, it's called, out into Oldham where many of our people have sort of dispersed and then dispersed again and then dispersed again. This is the model American cities have. This is why Obama has been elected. Many people in England, particularly those who don't go to the cities very often, scratch their heads and wondered why is there the first non-white president in the United States of America? Well, because the United States of America has changed out of all recognition. 70 million persons of colour have entered the United States of America since 1969. 70% of whites voted against Obama, but it increasingly doesn't matter because 98% of blacks voted for Obama, but of course race had nothing to do with their electoral choice, and Latinos, on the whole, voted for him in a majoritarian way. With the minority of unionised and left liberal whites, he's in, with a relatively small majority, but he's in, primarily on economic issues. One of the ironies is some of his policies in relation to Iraq and so on are relatively sane, actually, but America is a foreign country. When September the 11th happened, Blair played the American national anthem at Buckingham Palace. But he's got the country wrong. We're not the United States. We're not the 51st state. We are an independent country. We ought to have an independent policy in all areas. It was very revealing to me that Cameron says everything can be cut. Defence can be cut. The Treasury budgets for health... Oh, well, for education can be cut, health's going to be ring-fenced, but the, the thing that he was keenest of all to ring-fence was foreign aid. Foreign aid. He said, oh, no, he said, we are globalists. He said, we have compassion for the third world and the poor. He's a new sort of lovely conservative, you see. He's trying to get as far away from Thatcher's legacy as he can. He said, we will preserve international aid. Why? Why do we need to preserve international aid? Why, apart from aiding troops of ours in the field, and the odd thing that is in a micro way, directly in our military and or diplomatic interests, why are we giving any foreign aid at all? Charity begins at home. All of that money should come back here and be used here.
Cameron was instrumental in writing the last Tory manifesto. The last Tory manifesto had quite a lot in it because it was designed to shore up their core vote about immigration. Do you remember those big posters that the Tories had? It's not racist to be concerned about immigration. Somebody crept up to one that I saw with red paint and wrote, don't vote racist. <laughs> but they misspelt racist, you see, so it's either a victim of comprehensive education or they'd been drinking beforehand. <laughs> Cameron wrote that document for Howard. Remember Howard? Before all those changes to his conservatory on expenses and so on. He's going at the next election. But he wrote that document for Howard. But when Cam Cameron became Tory leader, he was asked about immigration. He said, oh, it's not a problem. Not a problem. Not a problem. Well, he obviously doesn't live in some of the areas which I mentioned earlier on in this talk. Not a problem. He was asked about six months ago and he said, oh, well, there's been too much of it. Oh, so there is, is a bit of a problem, isn't it? And he said, we will have a quota system. He said, a quota system. We will only allow in a, a top notch for the, the skills that are necessary. But we can't turn our backs on the rest of the world. Well, there's not much danger of turning one's backs on the rest of the world, is it? Because most of the rest of the world is living in South London at the present time. So there's not much a chance of turning one's back on it. It's said that the Conservative Party threw the Union flag in the gutter and the radical right in the 70s and thereafter had to get bound into the gutter to take it up. And that's not always an ex present experience. But it is noticeable that in perspective of the majority of indigenous people, all of our major parties are semi-traitorous. All of them are unpatriotic, the odd individual accepted. Not the voters, not all of the members necessarily, but the clerisy, the elite. Those who run the BBC, those who run our universities, not those who run our military necessarily, those who are in the House of Commons, those who are in the House of Lords, those who are in the top of the civil service. Never mind all this nonsense about we mustn't politicise the civil service. If ever this party was elected to any governmental power, the civil service will be acting against it from day one. You'd have to get rid of quite a lot of them, replace them with other people of competence, and you would have to politicise them. This society needs more politicisation, not less. The laziness of many of our people that we can leave someone else to do it. It's summer. Let's watch the cricket. You've got to get rid of that sort of idea if you want to retain your own country within the perspective of 50 to 100 years. If you don't want your children dragged into foreign wars. If you don't want to be a minority in your own street. If you want a school that means your children leave at 16 and are able to speak and write English grammatically and don't talk like a Jamaican gangster, you've got to vote for something different. If you want to roll back crime, if you want to end hundreds of thousands of abortions every year, if you want to be able to walk down to your shops without being worried about who you might meet on the way back, you should vote for a different dispensation of politics. If you want the murders of baby P mur uh, killed judicially through hanging, vote for a different type of politics. <laughs> If you want to see the end of the stranglehold of new Labour, old Labour and newly repackaged Conservative, people have got to vote for a different type of politics. We'll take votes from all over. Many of our people have voted for different parties and tendencies all their lives and deep down our people are very worried and very frightened. And these votes in the north uh, of England are a manifestation of this. Our people have been left leaderless. The people they once looked to, the clever people, the people with the gift of the gab, the 10,000 that do the top jobs right at the top, these people have gone. They're part of a global and an international elite now. 
If you want Greenwich to change or to be different or to be better or to be a modern version of what it might have been like in the 50s without idealising that too much, you've got to move to a different political dispensation. It's begun with people who've been so manifestly betrayed by Labour, they've got no alternative. Cruddis. Mr Cruddis, over-embarking and Dagenham. Cruddis is in the media, particularly the mirror, all the time. He's looking in the mirror and he doesn't like what he sees there. And what he sees is that the part of the Labour vote, because no one votes Tory in those sorts of areas, part of the Labour vote has just gone down, gone down, sort of disappeared. And it's quite traumatic. And he said, we never thought these people, by which he means these working class voters, of course, would vote for other political parties, like the SNP in Scotland, like the BNP, said in Stoke, like Plyde in Wales and so on. People have found other vehicles to protest against, but a protest vote's ephemeral, and in the end comes and goes with the wind. What you need is a strong, determined, viable vote, and you need to get into parliaments. The British people, and the English in particular amongst them, have seen that we can get into parliaments now. On the doorstep in the past, they say, well, I do sort of agree with you, but I hate all politicians, and in any case, you're not going to win, and you're not got into a parliament. That has been breached. In the GLA, we got a five, over 5%, so there'll be somebody in the Welsh Assembly next time uh, in the Principality. We've got two in the European Parliament. But just think, if a proportion of UKIP's vote could have been broken off and realigned, you could have had not two, but 12. Not 12, but 20. And once you get that sort of momentum, the system starts shaking and all sorts of people and sort of lines of force go uh, reverberate inside the Tory party. At a local level, this is what's happening in areas like Barking and Dagenham. What's happening is that Labour are beginning to feed on their own vitals as they see another party there, knowing that people in those areas won't really vote necessarily for other parties. So... When they all fall out with each other, they look across the chamber and say, I know you, you secretly, comrade, agree with them. Why aren't you sitting with them? And they all fight about how anti-BMP they are and how one of them has backslid a bit because he's not as anti as the others because it creates so much tension amongst them. As soon as you get in, the Tories will be nice to you privately most, time, most of the time, particularly people on the centre-right of that party. UKIP will be expressionless, essentially. And so, in a strange way, you have passive allies, by virtue of, once you get elected, by, in relation to the people who won't come out against you explicitly. Many of our people are actually too frightened to say what they think. Many of them either think we're a lunatic in our courage, or monsters, or somewhere in between, just for doing some politics, because most of our people are hiding. Because they think, it's happened, there's a deluge, you just sort of go with it, you live your own life, three million of our people live abroad. But there is some hope here. There is the possibility that this society, which our forefathers fought for, the last members of the wartime generation of 1418, have died the other week. Men who were 109, 110, 112, 113. Some of them fought in three or four different major engagements within those wars. What did they fight for? Did they fight for South London the way it is now? Did they fight for Greenwich the way it is now and will become in the future? Did they fight for inner Manchester now? Or did they fight for a different type of England, a different type of Britain, one that resonated with its own national traditions, one which was prouder than it is today, less forlorn and less broken than it is today, less cowardly to be what it is than, it is to be, than they fought for at that time? When they went over the top, they didn't fight for tolerance, progress and multiculturalism. They were fighting for an identity that was ethnic, that was racial, 
that was culturalized. They knew who they were, even if they hadn't got the wit to express it, they knew what they were. And they had people who interpreted it for them. As Britain declines, there probably will be a great, and the Christian religion seems to have gone for many people, there will be more of a cult of the dead. Because, of course, the generation that fought in the Second War will be coming up to that time a couple of decades from now when there is none of them left. And it has to be said, would they have gone up those beaches? Would they have parachuted onto Arnhem Bridge? Would they have fought in North Africa? Would they have fought in the convoys? Would they have fought against the Chinese? Would they have endured slave labour conditions under Bushido officers in Japanese prisons of war camp if they could have seen what this country has become now? If they could have seen what this country is like in 2009, when in 2005 we had a third of our tank corps in Iraq and we don't control the streets of South London on a Saturday night. I personally think that many of those who are dead would be shuddering in their graves if they could see what this country has become. A fifth of us obese, 25% of all children born um, non-white in extraction. Now, as a reality. And all because our establishment has been fearful and cowardly and lazy and deconstructed and lacks pride and lacks identity and lacks vigour. Did the people who went over the top in 14 or 15 at Yeep and Passchendaele, that were battles that were virtually hell on earth for the people who experienced them and where the, uh, the surface of the moon was recreated on the surface of the earth in Belgium and France, did they lack vigour when they went over the top with the others? And all classes died proportionately in relation to the numerical pyramid in the society at the time on those muddy fields. And the same in other wars. The truth is, as we look back upon history, our enemy wasn't the German people, or the Austrian people, or the Italian people, or even the Russian people back in Crimea, or the French. The enemy has been an interconnected series of ideas which have dominated us for 60 to 70 years, called liberal ideas of one sort or another, that have led to one thing after another being given away, until the demographic nature of our cities itself is being given away, until our culture is partly, partly in the process of being given away, although liberals believe that all can share it. But a culture that all can share doesn't have any meaning. If it's as promiscuous as that, what happens to the people who are here already? I noticed the chairman of this party was asked uh, recently on a BBC programme, what about Trevor MacDonald? And he said, well, that's all very well. He's very anglicised. He loves cricket. He's probably a Tory voter. But if he is as English as everyone else in every respect, what are the English? Who are they? What are they? How can they be defined? And the BBC interviewer, I believe, is an ex-independent journalist called Andrew Marr, quickly moved on. Quickly moved on, dear boy, to another topic, because he didn't particularly want to ask. Uh, they love to put the question, but they don't want to answer it. And the point to remember is if the whole world comes here, and if everyone claims to be a Westerner, I had a debate once with a Muslim intellectual, and I said to him, if all can be Westerners, and if the West goes universal, what about the people who are Westerners? What about us? What about our civilization? I don't believe the West is a universal civilization, which is why we shouldn't be in Iraq, we shouldn't be in Afghanistan, but at the same time, we want to control our own country. 
on our own streets. And we want to have our own identity here. If the era of empire is over, let the era of surrender not replace it. Let we not go from imperial domination to a situation where our old people die alone in areas where the mirror of the street says that they're strangers, even to one another. So I would ask you, in the future, to leaflet for this party, to raise money as you have done already for this party, to stand on occasion for this party and support those who do so, to canvass for this party, to buy its literature, to watch its propaganda, primarily but not exclusively on the internet, to vote for this party when you have the opportunity to do so, at all local elections, at regional elections. If there's an English parliament, vote for a particular party when it comes to those elections. If there's a democratic senate that replaces the House of Lords in the next five to ten years, don't deny yourself the possibility of voting for this party at such an election. In the coming parliamentary elections at the Westminster tier, still residually the most important parliament in our land, vote for this particular political party that will probably run more constituency candidates than it ever has before. When the devolved elections come round again in Wales and in Scotland, make sure people up there vote in the correct way. And when the European elections come round again, try and make 12 MEPs and 20 thereafter rather than two. Try and have a massive block in the European Parliament because the more you win, the more power you get, the more energy you have, the more the cowards come out and say, I agreed with you all along. Thank you very much. <laughs>